Welcome back to another week of Schizophrenic Reads, the podcast. This is a nonfiction book podcast hosted by me, Nathan Shurek, where we talk about nonfiction books with authors and readers. This week, I am so excited to have the wonderful author Adrian Shirk here. Adrian wrote this book called Heaven is a Place on Earth, which is about utopias in America and a personal journey of exploring them. I really found this book so enjoyable and such a lovely, calm read. Uh, it took me a while to finish, but in the best sense possible that I just wanted to like sit with it and take my time after each chapter. So Adrian, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I am so excited to dive deep into your book. Thank you, Nathan. It is super exciting to be here. I'm a huge fan of your public work of librarianship in a non-institutional way. Um, so I'm, I'm super honored to be here. Well, thank you so much. Um, well, the listeners won't be able to see it, but your your backdrop is just absolutely gorgeous. It's got a little library. You told me you're in a sunroom. Can you just talk about like where you're at now, like both like the room, but also just like what your living situation is like now? Sure thing. Um, and for whatever it's worth, as you know, my living situation now is very related to the process of having written Heaven is a Place on Earth um, over a very long period of time. Um, I live in the Northwest Catskills, uh, the kind of Appalachian wing um, in New York State, about three and a half hours north of New York City. And I live on a um, large tract of um, no longer agrarian, but formerly kind of gentleman farm land and an old 19th century farmhouse, um, which I moved into uh, before the pandemic. Um, in an effort and a hope um, to create both a life for myself um, and also to kind of instantly marshal it into a set of cooperativized um, resources for a huge network of you know artists and social workers and um, scholars and and people who were in my midst to my friends, the world of people that I had been, Kind of living among and noticing, um, you know, all the ways in which we were struggling to kind of survive in a basic way in the early 21st century with our underpaid vocation. <laughs> and, um, and I saw this opportunity after what really had been a decade of pretty rigorous, like speculative research um, to locate some of that hope here um, by instantly creating a um, a set of kind of cooperative retreats, residencies, studios um, that a large network of people um, were sort of paying very small amounts into and also or contributing to the labor or the creation or construction in a kind of sweat equity way so that we all had a resource that we would not have otherwise been able to afford um, had we been pursuing or trying to create that on our own um, in, in an individualized way. Meanwhile, it's also my home. And so it is also, you know, it was a way for me to buy a piece of property um, on an adjunct <laughs> teacher's <laughs> wage and a string of, you know, a decade and a half of um, other kinds of gigs and freelance work. Um, while maintaining a fairly low overhead for myself and for um, 
a wide group of people. Not all of those people live here. Um, there have been lots of people who've certainly lived here long term um, over the last four years. Um, but a lot of people also have kind of long-term relationships to this place, but live elsewhere, live in the region or live in the tri-state area or live in New York City. Um, and it would be a fool's errand to describe all the different iterations <laughs> that it has gone through during that time. Um, it would also be a mistake, I think, for me to just to to determine exactly even what it is right now. But it remains my home and it remains a kind of open-ended cooperative resource. For instance, there's a local um, uh, theater and, and performance series slash residency um, in my town um, who I collaborate with frequently so that I'm part of the, so that this place, my home, the Mutual Aid Society, um, is a part of the sort of housing and the conditions where the artists are kind of developing their project. Um, it's a laboratory for them to then go present it um, in town at this black box theater that we have access to. Um, and that's a that's a collaborative um relationship with Cat's Cradle, which is the series, you know, but on the other hand, there's also, um, you know, other organizations or other individuals um, who emerge and have some kind of need or partnership that would be mutually beneficial um, or a project, someone who just needs rest or a, a moment to kind of think or pivot um, and, you know, in the absence of any way to kind of afford an ordinary way of doing that, or in the absence of, you know, relying on institutional support like residencies where you apply a year out and, you know, five people are chosen <laughs> anyway. And, and even if you're one of those five people, what's your life like? a year after yeah. applying, maybe you have a baby, maybe you, <laughs> you know, maybe someone has died, maybe like, who knows, you know? Um, and so I think this kind of offers a sort of immediacy, um, you know, for when people need to pause or think or make something or develop something. Um, and again, you know, in, in all of that, it is my, it is my home. It is my HQ for four years. Um, yeah. Yeah. Your book is on uh, communes and the ideas of utopia, and I think like the, the both the personal and like kind of an academic exploration of these types of topics. Uh, this really feels like how you wrote the book, but also I think just like the tone of the writing and the tone of the storytelling uh, make it seem like this is something you've thought about way before you thought about turning it into a book. Like maybe this was something you thought about as a teenager or, or early twenties, and then just over the time you know, I think maybe just decided like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe turn this into a book. So I'm curious, like how long you've been thinking about this and at like what stage you were like, you decided like, oh no, I'm going to write a, a book about this topic. Thank you for asking that question. Um, and for kind of reading that sense of like longevity into the inquiry. <laughs> um, because, you know, I do think that as you know, early as my late teens, um, the idea of uh, you know alternative modalities of of really specifically kind of you know familial or community formation um, became 
really important to me. I don't know that I would have understood it um, in terms of uh, an American utopian tradition um, or even communitarianism, but just a really sort of latent, you know, agitation or refusal of the terms that seemed to be fixed, i.e. that, you know, there were, there was <laughs> a nuclear family structure on offer, or there were particular kinds of economic, you know, communities um, on offer that you could, you know, fight to get into or opt into or opt out of, um, but that there were these, there were these kind of fixed um, modes of, of world building. And, 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 and I think really the, it located for me, like very deeply around this question of, you know, how to build or develop or nurture familial networks, you know, that felt actually kind of sustainable um, mm. as, as a, as a kind of wayward teen. And, um, and when I got to college, um, which was its own kind of raggedy pursuit, I, you know, felt like, oh, this is a really crucial laboratory for this feeling that I've been having for a long time. And even as ordinary of an experience as college is, and, and honestly, is often one of the only, you know, kind of contexts in, in kind of American middle class life where a kind of like communitarianism and hyper local existence um, among a kind of like multi-generational community of people is really <laughs> acceptable or or kind of even taken for granted is like, well, that's normal at that moment in time. But otherwise we then abandon that structure as soon as it's over and kind of go back to the other. Yeah, I mean, I think that's almost like when I think of like my ideas of like a utopia, it's like something like in high school you would have thought of as kind of like an explorer kind of mentality of like, oh yeah, go like take care of the land and stuff. And then in your early 20s specifically, like you graduate college and then you get out into the real world and you're like almost instantly like, oh my God, like I just want to live on a commune because you're like, you for the first time have experienced some type of communal living and then you experience like actual real adulthood, which is so displaced from the social organization that it should be. And then I think it, you kind of just get used to it. You get lulled into like what the realities of adulthood are. And now I think especially like through channels like TikTok and just being online and stuff. Like there's been so many creators that are like at my age in my early thirties or, you know, even like later thirties, forties, fifties talking about communes again. And I think it's no longer that adventurism and it's no longer like just a emotional response to, you know, leaving college. It's now like a despondency within culture to like actually seek these out. And like, this was a, a kind of a recurring theme of the stories that you told of different communes of like kind of a despondency or just a distaste for different parts of society. And um, it's not always um, it's not always out of like the leftist ideologies and politics that I think we would probably consider. But there were so many different ways that people felt just like that they weren't used or weren't needed or like didn't really properly function in society. And I wish, I wonder if you could like get into a couple of those kind of stories and talk about how that played into like the formation of these types of existences throughout like American history. Totally. Um, and I would also add to that list of, you know, reasons for um, 
kind of developing a utopian experiment or project uh, as also being entirely rejected or disenfranchised from mm -hmm. from the, the you know the um, the world or the society that one was born into or that a group of people were born into. And so you have all of these different possible motives. But I think um, you know it, it's funny to sort of to think about like my very ordinary sort of white American, you know, middle class, you know, foray into a utopian inquiry as like feeling very kind of devastated by the nuclear family as a model, um, going to college and, and, and beginning to actually view it and, and live in it as a sort of laboratory for myself for <laughs> you know, a future, um, you know, sustainable, um, model for some other kind of, you know, multi-generational, uh, multidisciplinary, you know, network, um, sustainable network of, you know, of, of, of living, um, when, you know, the sort of, you know, history of utopian experimentation, I think, you know, begins effectively with imperialism, you know, that, that utopianism is a corrective and is a response, a kind of never-ending response to um, the violence of empire building and, mm. and is the modality constantly um, of revealing, even if it's very brief, you know, glimmers or images of, you know, of how it, how it could be, even if even if that too will fail or get squashed, um, you know, but, but that the kind of necessity of constantly, you know, offering and then living immediately in, you know, you know, prototypes of, of just another way to function and support one another and survive you know, it reveals the sort of fallacy of imperialism, which mm -hmm. is that it is the only way it is, it is totalizing. Um, and so, you know, when I think about utopian experimentation in the sort of context of American history, you know, there's a huge, you know, array of movements and communities that, you know, scholars and our libraries, you know, identify as, um, you know, official utopian uh projects such as, you know, the Shakers um, who developed through their prophetess, Mother Ann Lee, you know, dozens and dozens of, you know, uh, communitarian um, agrarian uh, colonies devoted to pacifism, egalitarianism, anti-racism, celibacy, ecstatic worship, and the production of beauty, um, and who... Uh, and who were, you know, a very mobile um, movement over the course of, you know, the 250 years they've existed. They still exist in one place in Sabbath Day Lake, Maine. Um, but there were times in the 20th and 19th century that, you know, their population, you know, as a movement was massive across, mm. you know, from Indiana to Maine to Florida and kind of all of these different areas in between. Um, and they were massive because their, their, their numbers would surge um, during periods of like economic social precarity in the United mm -hmm. States because um, they offered and they had an open door. Um, you could leave, you know, or go, you could, you could leave or come, you know, at will. Um, 
you know, there were practices and certainly, you know, the deep kind of monastic spiritual life that, that, that governed, you know, what they did, but they were also deeply practical in terms of how they functioned. A lot of their lives daily were, you know, was, was, was about making things and growing things and kind of, um, and being part of the functioning of this, um, you know, this, what really was like a very luxurious existence, um, you know, or offered one. Um, so I think of the Shakers, I think of the Oneida community who were this like groovy 19th century, um, you know, what we might call today, uh, polyamorous, you know, Christian community in upstate New York that all lived in this giant neoclassical mansion um, and also had this kind of amazing, luxurious life through um, a common purse, right? So this is a feature of a lot of these um, these movements is that all of their material assets, um, all of their wealth um, was entirely shared. And in so doing, they had huge pieces of property and huge houses and tons of food and tons of material, <laughs> like, you know, luxuries, often in contexts where the um, the rest of the world, you know, immediately around them didn't. Um, and, you know, and they also had their own, you know, specific groovy theology that, you know, definitely governed, you know, but that definitely governed their lives in a daily way, um, but also was, a, you know, deeply committed to a, um, a very egalitarian theology. So, you know, this, this, I think what they're kind of most famous for um, in in the modern era is the sort of centering of um, female sexual autonomy within um, all you know within kind of a small society and definitely in relation definitely ahead of the time with that one. Yeah, too. yeah, you know, and then there's all kinds of like other wacky dysfunction, um, <laughs> like that you know that that's also related to the kind of history of the Oneida, but one of the things that's at the center of their community, um, you know, was the production of, you know, a, a cottage industry, um, which a lot of these communities also needed to have. So they produced silverware and still do, um, not as a uh, communitarian uh, group, but um, but effectively, you know, in the 20th century sort of decommissioned the commune, but the Oneida Silverware Company still exists. Um, it's true for like the Amana Corporation. It, you'll see like Amana branding for refrigerators and air conditioners. And, um, you know, that too was a was a huge German, you know, American millenarian communitarian movement largely located in the Midwest. You know, their cottage industry um, ultimately, again, outlived the actual sort of mystical communitarian um, utopian project through the guise of um, you know, these, these appliances. Um, but that was, you know, that company kind of emerged out of this very, um, sustained communitarian movement. So those are just three that are, that are really kind of famous examples when, 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 when American history scholars are talking about American utopianism, you know, I think with my book, I tried to acknowledge and think through a lot of that you know, really rich history of the things that we kind of can identify. Mm -hmm. But then I also tried to 
extend this definition of what it is we're talking about when we're talking about utopian movements? Are we talking about communes? Are we talking about like weird white Protestants who, you know, kind of created um, interesting theologies that resulted in kind of shared purse economies? Are we talking about white people in rural landscapes that were effectively available because of, you know, genocidal campaigns and colonialism, maybe not by them themselves, but, you know, but that they're sort of the recipients of, you know, is, you know, is that all we're talking about? Or are we, you know, are we talking about something that's a descriptive category, you know, Mm -hmm. utopianism, not as, um, not as a site, a single kind of place, um, not as rural or urban or, um, or, or religious or, um, you know, or really fixed in time, but as, you know, an activity, um, that comes up again and again. And so I start the book by looking at the Bronx rebuilding movement, um, which was a, a kind of sweat equity cooperative housing movement, um, that effectively rebuilt the Bronx. Um, out of, you know, kind of extreme economic disinvestment, um, you know, from the 70s onward by the people who were living in the Bronx and actually, um, you know, in spite of the pretty muscular resistance um, to that, to the success of that movement by the city and the state and the, you know, and the, and the federal government. Um, and, and so I was like looking at, you know, is this a utopian movement that, you know, um, you know, several hundred thousand people kind of formed these freestanding block associations and by hand and with each other taught each other how to rebuild their, their abandoned buildings and then mm-hmm. and then once they did because no one was even looking at them um at, while they were doing it were able to turn around to the city and claim sweat equity and buy their buildings back for a very small amount of money and and have kind of cooperative community ownership over the vast majority of the south bronx while the rest of the country was like oh you know the poor bronx oh well <laughs> like had this whole other narrative about about the Bronx as having, you know, disappeared or failed. Um, you know, I I think about like things as small as, you know, community gardens um, that kind of pop up in, especially like in blighted or abandoned, you know, urban landscapes that then produce with very little communal labor, labor and supplies, like mm-hmm. tons of food and, and community context um, for, you know, usually actually quite an enormous array of people, you know, I, I think of like, even, I love like failed, uh, failed educational institutions as, as, as kind of markers of, of, of utopian experimentation in the U.S. because I'm like, oh, that's definitely, <laughs> that definitely <laughs> utopian because it was unable to sustain it. So yeah. it didn't have an endowment. No one, you know, there was no, um, there was no way for it to accumulate power. So I think of like Black Mountain College um, in the sort of early and mid 20th century as this amazing 
you know, kind of 26 year experiment running on like a dollar and a prayer until it had no dollar left. Um, and yet, you know, was able to kind of produce a really rich and enduring, you know, experiment in education and communality through its kind of centrality of all of the faculty and students having to build their own buildings and run the farm that fed themselves um, and many, many other things. But I also look at more modern things like I'm like the College of Santa Fe, um, which is just this like really interesting college in Santa Fe, New Mexico, that also um, that had a bunch of really interesting interdisciplinary programs. And there's so many cool things that were happening there. And it, you know, it, it also dissolved and collapsed like sometime, I don't know, maybe in the last decade or so. And I, and I, I look at them, you know, as actually this really beautiful embodiment of, of 21st century education, because, um, it actually gets to be a model for something really interesting and cool that happened without having ever you know, become a basically speculative real estate project, which is what all other private colleges that exist longer than 20 years become. There's so many gradations to like, I think the ideologies that surround the the start or the sustained nature of these movements. Uh, I am kind of curious if you see kind of any role that geography plays into, you know, maybe certain movements happen in certain places, but you talked about the Bronx, but there's also kind of like, it's not, I mean, it's, it's kind of utopian in ideal sense, like the, the Greenwich village with the artisans that all live there in the sixties and seventies and eighties. You also have the Midwest, which has been home, especially Pennsylvania, Indiana, Ohio to the Amish for centuries at this point. And then, you know, in, in a place like Portland, you had the growth of this kind of anarchist free zone, um, down in the downtown area of Portland during the 2020s or during 2020 specifically, but you have these kind of groups that grow up around a specific thing, but happen only in like certain locations. You know, there's been, I think this steadily growing new ages movement out of like Sedona, Arizona over the last, you know, 15 years. And there's a lot of, I think just different ideologies that come into play. Is there anything that you've seen across just different landscapes cropping up only in certain parts of the country? Or is this, you know, do you think there's maybe the, the larger tone of it all is, is just like everyone's trying to find their place and what crops up in certain places? Maybe there isn't a geographical reason, or maybe there is. I'm just kind of curious what you, what you think about it, especially looking at <laughs> these types of communities throughout the decades and throughout like all, all across the United States. Uh, I, I'm like, this book has put me in this wild position constantly of of like suddenly finding that I'm just a a sort of bathtub philosopher. Um, <laughs> Which of, is the best of, kind of, of philosopher? Yeah, yeah existential and moral questions that um that I get to just I'm prompted to sometimes to speak on, which I love. I mean, like because this is you know the kind of question you're asking is like the kinds of like rich and wonderful mobilizing conversations I got to have with everyone I love and all of my friends over the last 10 years that kind of helped <laughs> in writing a book, but also the kinds of conversations that always feel kind of freaky to have in public because 
suddenly if they're in public, you're like, I don't know. You know, this is a definite like uh, one o'clock in the morning and you're like high with friends and you're talking like this is this is real deep. But, you know, we don't know where it's going to go. And that's, you know, that's half the fun of it. So talking as friends and not and not as, um, you know, a scholar um, of being in time, I, um, you know, I think that I've definitely noticed and have all kinds of sort of harebrained theories about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the conditions and, and specifically say the geographical conditions that these kinds of experiments kind of crop up. But, um, you know, obviously it's not a grand unifying theory. What I've noticed is that there's lots <laughs> in, um, mountainous regions and especially uh and and specifically mountains not volcanic mountainous regions like in the the northwest where i grew up but um lower you know highland previously kind of steppe mountains Mm -hmm. so appalachia um and the ozarks and um the sort of low rolling mountains of middle tennessee um you know there's a lot of other kinds of reasons that would lead to these particular areas and by Appalachia I'm like you know Maine to Georgia Mm -hmm. uh you know there's there's been so much interesting kind of utopian activity and settlement um you know in that particular region that also kind of ties to all kinds of patterns of settler colonial history and and the ways that you know not just that that land was kind of used um, but also the things happening, you know, around it. So, you know, I think what Appalachia also has, in addition to kind of Highland being being Highland being kind of hard to control or hard to kind of capture as a commodity, um, as a as a as a as a geography, um, is often it's it's in some proximity to other you know cities um, that are at the bases of um, of Appalachia um, across the United, uh, across the kind of Eastern seaboard. Um, and so there's like this interplay, you know, this, this way that like, there's, there, there, that there's, that there is actually sort of a, a powerful and maybe necessary tension between these sort of countercultural world building projects and their proximity to, um, kind of economic engines. Um, and maybe it's not a direct one, um, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're dreaming of each other. They're critiquing each other. They're, they're literally past, you know, there's a cottage industry that, <laughs> that some utopian experiment, you know, needs to pitch its, you know, its wares to somebody. Um, well, from- even like looking up, uh, like writer residencies and stuff or, or like writer retreats, every single time I've looked one up, it's like the website will always list, you know, especially in the New York and the like, um, the lower New England area that's, you know, part of Appalachia is like, you will see on the website, it always lists like, oh, two hours from New York, three hours from New York. <laughs> like, it's always like, you have so kind of, I think, linked yourself back to civilization in some sense. And it's so funny because like, reading that as a Midwesterner, that is never a measurement of time or distance from me is like, distance to like, like New York or or the city even like we're just like it's a long drive and that means 15 hours it's a short drive that means under 6 hours you know like there's just like i think the way that we conceptualize i think Absolutely. time and place and distance is all kind of like i mean that's like a geographically kind of centered uh you know i think like 
common language that there exists in those spaces. Definitely. Um, and then I also think that there's, you know, weird mystical uh, reasons for, for, for some of that in that I think of Appalachia as being this like among the most ancient exposed, mm-hmm. you know, geological formation on earth. It is, you know, it is, it has, it is, it is, it is notably that. And so I think mm-hmm. of sort of like ancient weird rock um that is that 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 was that has been above ground you know for longer than most things have been above ground and something about this sort of way that it draws certain kinds of activities um you know that's part of that's part of my my geographical theology of of (laughs) utopia but then i think of so many other things you know thinking of the midwest like we're also talking about you know patterns of of like settlement and immigration Mm -hmm. and migration and, you know, and the ways that certain kinds, you know, of factors having to do with those things, you know, create, you know, certain kinds of, you know, religious or, you know, ethno-religious communities um, Mm -hmm. that arrive in particular kind of regions of the United States, um, you know, around the same time um, and also have a kind of not just a kind of cultural fluency, but also maybe have, you know, a kind of theological um, or communitarian fluency um, that, you know, creates, I think, this very rich history um, through a lot of the upper Midwest. Um, and really, I mean, a, a great deal, but I think of the Great Lakes Midwest as actually being this, you know, and or a lot of the Rust Belt, the kind of the Western part of the Rust Belt um, containing a lot of, um, you know, Eastern European, Central European um, communitarian projects, you know, such as the Amana um, colonies, as well as the Harmonists. Um, uh, so a lot of these pietist movements, each of whom had their own, you know, their own kind of set of beliefs and their own um, practices and their own cottage industries. Um, but, uh, you know, but who shared at heart like a belief of of all things in common as kind of a spiritual um you know dogma um Mm -hmm. and a structure around that around how all things in common would take place um and egalitarianism um a kind of like very rigorous um specifically for the harmonists a very kind of rigorous um and conscious uh, equality of the sexes in the 19th century. Um, and, and the idea of kind of a shared, you know, of, of an equally shared labor, um, you know, and so I think about then like the Pacific Northwest, because this was, you know, we're thinking about Portland, you know, or just like the West coast, you know, you know, as this hotbed of, especially, you know, 20th century, um, you know, utopian activity, right? This, or this place that we think of as this sort of laboratory fomenting, you know, the hippie movement and the anarchist commune movement and, and, and a lot of this sort of, again, the 20th century energy of the, and and onward of the new age movement and all of its iterations, you know, as this sort of home of, of, of the new age at that particular moment. Um, And, you know, and so what is it about, you know, what is it about like 
that kind of communitarianism and the hippie commune movement as being located at the edge of the continent um, mm-hmm. at that period of time. And, and on, again, on another hand, I'm like, well, there are these contexts of like migration and settlement history, which is like, you know, what, and, and, and then thinking about, you know, like, and who's at the helm of that, you know, settlement and migration history and who's at the helm of, um, at that time in the mid 20th century, like a lot of the hippie commune, anarchist commune and new age movements. And is there a through line, <laughs> you know, is there, yeah. is there a lot of whiteness, you know, is there, um, and yet also like, and then what's the existential, you know, what's the existential conditions of having as a colonial, like settler colonial project reached the end of the continent and faced, you know, faced like the 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 void of of what what you've done or what or what has been done you know or what <laughs> and yeah and 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 also all of the, the different ways in which people have generationally in specifically you know in high quantities i think on the west coast post settler colonialism moved further and further away from pre-american identities so you have a lot of um you know, high populations of higher populations of people who are two or three or four generations away from, um, and you know, they're uh, an immigrant experience in the 20th century. Um, you have a higher, you have a higher population of people who are farther away from a pre-American experience than, um, on the East coast, um, at that same time where there's still lots and lots of, lots of direct, um, migration and immigration. Um, and, and something about something about that, something about these patterns of migration, you know, these patterns of colonial settlement, um, and then and and then mystical, you know, mystical features, I guess, of mm-hmm. or existential features of, you know, what it means to, you know, kind of be at the very kind of, you know, edge um, of this imperial project. What it means to um, you know, be around this rock that has been exposed for 30 million years. Yeah. Um, it's a crazy answer to your question. <laughs> no, no, I, I loved it. I, I think we could we could literally just do a two-hour podcast, like going like region by region and, and making suppositions about these groups. Uh, I would love which, You know, maybe, maybe we have a Patreon-only episode coming up with that, but I've asked about the place, and now I want to kind of ask about time. And this is another big, you know, open-ended question for you. But uh, like one of the like the recurring parts of your book, both in like the the personal narrative that you've put in your story, but also just like the research and stuff is like the, the things have an ending or, or or it's not always like it's not always like a story. It doesn't just end exactly. But so many of these like communes and these utopiast places have eventually died out in some sense. You know, that it's, it's, they've been lost to time or they've just morphed into something that was not sustainable. And I I kind of, have, I've been thinking about it a lot recently, especially since like finishing the book, but of like my ideas of communism is just like, it's, it's a, it's an idealist system in which like has not properly existed and has always just continued to try to exist against the phrase of like the industrial and the uh, colonial and the capitalist world. And so it's just trying to like reformations or reformat it into like existing in the new time and place 
but always kind of like continuously failing in some sense to like really arise in a proper sense and, and like be kind of the future going forward. And I think talking about like the endings and you just kind of over, over the course of the book, you reiterate over and over again, like uh, these places, they crop up and they, they exist in their beautiful ways, sometimes for mere months and sometimes for decades and decades. But they like the kind of the story is they kind of fall they fall apart, they they fall out, or whatever it is. Um, I, I think, I mean, you could obviously write a whole book on just, like, that idea, but I'm just curious kind of what you think, like, what lends itself to that happening and, and kind of, like, I don't know, do you see maybe, like, a version in which, like, maybe a, a future that we're heading for doesn't have that kind of mentality, you know? Or, like, these maybe these institutions... It's weird to call them institutions, but maybe they are more sustainable going forward. Maybe there, maybe there is something in us that is like deeply longing for, I don't know, the reaction to the like hyper capitalist society we're living in. Yeah, um, the, I think the first part of the question um, about failure or about that sort of inevitable. Um, you know, story of continuous failure that's that's uh, inevitable. Um, it reminds me of this um, quote by the writer Kino Evil that uh, I actually draw from at the near the end of the book, and and I'm gonna butcher the quote, but it's something along the lines of, of you know the history the history of the left is the history of failed utopias. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more um, to that quote, and he's writing it um, kind of following the uh, uh, following the trial um, of Derek Chauvin, um, which was immediately like followed by um, another police an act of police brutality murder. Um, of Dewante Wright, and and so there's this moment. It's this really beautiful essay, you know, where he's trying to sort of grapple with, you know, what it means for like a, a you know a social justice movement to to feel like it has a, a win, and then to kind of immediately be faced with the you know the 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 ways in which uh, these win these wins which so rarely happen are mm-hmm. also not comprehensive to you know are also you know are also not um we cannot read them <laughs> as as plot points um of a story of continuous upward progression because there is still all of this, you know, kind of systemic horror that we are mired in. And, and that there's, and that there's something about the sort of like maintenance, you know, and sustainability of a kind of, radical momentum for social justice kind of movements that um that has to live in that tension 
I think about that all the time because I think about the ways in which utopian experimentation, if it's understood as, which I understand it as, um, as kind of as a response, as like an unrelenting, ceaseless response um, to imperialism, that like it is it is necessary for its for its continuousness and its variety um, to 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 present to constantly form and in fact like it it will like if we look at the history of utopianism <laughs> we see it as a never ending constantly regurgitating itself mm-hmm. constantly creating different versions of itself constantly having kind of new motivations um for and and structures um and so the individual sort of failures or collapses or ephemerality of a particular movement um you know is it would be a mistake to evaluate that through the lens that we evaluate that where that we're kind of trained to evaluate um success in a capitalist society you know that like that it's actually, um, it would be, we would not be able to ever read the history of utopian experimentation in any meaningful way if we were looking to it for um, evidence of like longevity or permanence um, or institutionalization or, you know, and, and in part because, you know, the things that tend to have those qualities um, are things that tend to, marshal you know accumulate tons of power and money um and even if they were doing something kind of cool before end up betraying whatever they (laughs) once they become an institution because once you're institutionalized like this very structure of that is to protect the institution at all costs yeah that becomes the thing even if that institution has a message or a mission that 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 declares some other value, you know? Um, so I think about like this this string of failures, you know, what does it mean that like the Bronx is, is and the South Bronx is like getting violently gentrified like mm-hmm. right now after all those decades of like, of rigorously putting it under community control? You know, what does it mean that, um, you know, these like groovy educational contexts what does it mean that like there were 3000, you know, communes of varying um, degrees of like, um, you know, value <laughs> in the 1960s and 70s um, that failed sometimes within a day or within a month? You know, what does it mean that, you know, our social justice movements, um, you know, produce an occasional um, accountability occasional accountability mm-hmm. and then deliver us back into a world where the same exact thing is going to be the same exact violence is going to be reproduced um and and you know i don't have like a you know a totalizing answer to that but i do think that you know utopianism um, when thought of again, as like a pursuit, as an activity, as a history, as something that's almost really like a kind of spiritual lens, mm-hmm. um, as gestures that are concrete, immediate happening in real time, 
producing, you know, um, you know, no real sustainable profit um, and meeting a material need and a social crisis as it exists in the world, um, even if it's not directly confronting that thing, it's formed because of a, because of a spiritual economic social crisis. Um, you know, that, that, that the, that the individual kind of failures or ends of those particular movements, um, is not a tragedy, um, Mm. as a total story, there are many tragic ends. Um, but they become, I think, valuable and more mobilizing when we look at them as actually, um, as actually kind of knitting together a a very um, elaborate and sustained response um, and 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 vision of you know what could be possible or not even what could be but what currently is yeah and and how do we know it because it is happening and it has already happened and it is continuing to happen and so this the futurity question part of your question you know is like god you know i don't know how to answer that question other than in like my own kind of groovy <laughs> like eschatological way but i think i guess my answer to that is like what i do know because i've observed it happening in real time and as like a historical you know a series of ongoing historical events is that these kinds of activities movements agitations whether they are places whether they are um you know kind of mobile um whether they are kind of all you know something more ephemeral you know like um something that happens one off you know a, a kind of yeah something that's more one off um i get i think of like the the amazing month-long um oh man i can't even remember this amazing month-long strike coal strike that happened in kentucky in um 2019 where all of these kind of all of these you know huge kind of like diverse in terms of like sexual orientation and class like all of these like all of these like working class whole country um people kind of came together and camped out for a month to block the rail and suddenly you had like and you had a bunch of people who had kind of been um a lot of queer people who had left this region and lived elsewhere but who came back for this demonstration and so you had all of these you know people kind of like working together and camping together and feeding each other and making music videos um to like old town road together that (laughs) summer and it was like, you know, who'd never collaborated, who'd never felt in solidarity, but who now had a common enemy. And actually through that, you know, a beautiful month-long utopian gesture took place, you know, in my opinion. And so I think of that um, because I'm because my answer is like, yeah, this will always happen and is always happening. And every time it happens whatever it is, it does feed back into the compost of society. It does do something to us. It does 
you know, it does add or remix something to the toolbox. Yeah. It does, you know, it does change the way we think or feel or do something. It shows up in a practice. It might not even be direct. You know, it might not even be super conscious or sometimes it is super conscious. Like we are reproducing this tactic or this structure or this idea that has this lineage. Um, and, and so I know that's, you know, a, a bit open-ended of an answer, but, um, but yeah, it, and I say that, you know, and not with a distinct caveat, which is that <laughs> I don't, that I don't really believe in progress in the kind of like Hegelian way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, you know, but I do in a very practical way, I do see, you know, these kinds of activities and pursuits as having, as always ceaselessly, relentlessly continuing to happen and always making some kind of mark, but not, but not a mark that is not measurable with, I think the tools that we currently have in our brains, you know, mushed by society (laughs) to evaluate. One of like the most recurring comments that I get on my TikTok and Instagram is like, how are you not depressed like all the time with like the amount of uh, history and politics and little weird subjects and climate change stuff that I read is like, it's basically just this recurring thing. But I mean, I think something like reading your book and reading um, Kim Kelly's uh, Fight Like Hell, which is a history of labor movements in the US, it really is this like kind of like to me, it's this like distillation of like, of watching people be unsatisfied with society is the ultimate form of like pleasure for me. Of not just like the people's like personal anguish, but of like people like questioning the systems in place enough to like be dissatisfied with it. And so, you know, when I see people talking about like, yeah, I was joking a little while ago about like wanting to start a hype house or a TikTok creator house in like the UP of Michigan and being like, just get away from things and form a big library and, and, you know, go make your silly little videos, but like do it with friends, do it with people that you love and do it with, do it in, in a community where you all care for each other. And I think like this type of thing is like infecting us because I think we're ultimately like, we are living out Mark Fisher's kind of conceptualization of like, he, he talks about Fukuyama's like the end of history is like, we can't imagine something bigger. We can't imagine something more. And then you go back to something like like the early communists, specifically like Lenin had with like, no, revolution has to be unending. It has to be recurring. It has to like just keep happening over and over again. And so this this idea that this utopian idealism keeps cropping up and keeps cropping up in new and creative ways, but that we can like one, both draw from histories, but also try to imagine new histories, try to imagine like new things that like are so hard to conceptualize in a capitalist hellscape that we're living in. Like, to me, that's what keeps the depression at bay for me. It's not like, oh, wow, I learned something horrible. It's like, no, I'm learning like there there really exists in human nature something to get beyond this. So that's that's my personal rant into into your to what your book is and, and how it made me feel. But um, we are <laughs> slightly running out of time. So I do want to ask my final question, which is always the same question. And it's just, what books have you been in love with recently? What books, you know, it could have been during research or, or just books that you've read recently. And like, what would you recommend to me? What would you recommend to the listeners um, just to like spend some time with some good reads? Um, great question. Um, 
one book that I've been reading and I love, I've just finished, is my friend's book called Entwined, which is this really beautiful collection of essays about polyamory, but in a way that is not, um, I think like so much of this kind of literature is sort of a, something that's like advocacy or self-help or mm-hmm. or how-to or or a kind of like arc that is, you know, getting from some kind of point A to point B or explaining how this came to be. It's like, it's actually very unique and feels very in, in <laughs> line with, um, I think, with utopianism in that like, mm doesn't really explain its own premise. It's just a collection. It's a collection of, um, you know, essays and stories um, that are just revealing different sorts of dimensions, you know, of Alex Alberto, the author's experience. Um, But like, again, not in a, um, yeah, in a way that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't prove, that doesn't, isn't trying to prove why, why it's, why it as a book needs to exist or, or why polyamory is, um, you know, is the subject. It just is. And, and it's, and (laughs) polyamory is itself in so many ways, a kind of fundamental, um, refusal of Mm -hmm. her, of, of lot, like a bunch of social and economic, you know, conditions actually like, um, it's a book that I that I'm 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 really loving. I think for its um, for its capacity to actually think so deeply about um, all of those different kind of intersecting front lines, um, but it's also just deeply personal and direct, and like um, and it does all of that thinking through image and through storytelling. Mm. Other cool thing about that book is that um, Alex and three other writers. Um, created their own press called Quilted Press to um, publish through. And they have this amazing cohort model and this amazing economic model with like a limited rights um, contract so that, you know, they're they're creating like ways for intellectual property of books to not kind of just be kind of consumed by a particular Mm. kind of publishing entity. And then if that book ever, you know, goes out of print or whatever, like that, you know, that that intellectual property is like bound up in kind of a carcass, actually. Mm-hmm. And like, well, how can we create like a sustainable model, a press that kind of embodies like our, in, you know, our, our economic and um, cultural sustainability values? And it's an amazing press. Like it's like the ways that they've thought through these things um, as a group. Um, and the ways that they kind of like expand the the three writer cohort every year so that you're also creating kind of a community of, um, you know, kind of writers and resources um, and kind of, a you know, additional promotional vehicles. They got like really um, amazing designers to do their books to people like the, the, the book designer for Detransition Baby did mm-hmm. all their their the covers of their um oh, wow. it's like it's a, it's just like this amazing operation actually um so yeah i'm like entwined quilted press i'm reading tova jansen's this beautiful novella called fair play tova jansen being the um like illustrator 
of the the Moomin series, this, um, which like is totally different than <laughs> this book, which is you know this sort of narrative of like two aging women artists who live together um, and have lived together for a really long time, and just sort of like their daily practices mm. um, and and in their own work and and with each other. It's actually like a really amazing book. Um, and also I do a lot of, I do some select literary agenting through my, um, partner, my, my agenting partners, um, LLC Driftless. And so I do a lot of reading and working with manuscripts that are not published yet, <laughs> um, which I've been really enjoying. Um, and that is and, really cool. Yeah. And, and so, um, but I think about that because I enjoy, oh, I'm, I'm enjoying um, the work of uh, a book where a practicing psychic medium is converting um, kind of the development of mediumship as um, a, like a fully kind of accessible um, to non- <laughs> you know, people who don't need to identify in any particular way as kind of a mystical person as actually as like a practical um, tool for the development of, of kind of intuition and communication. Um, another um, writer, Eliza Swan, is working on this amazing um, memoir that we're about to sub. Um, that's a kind of trifecta of um, her own experiences um as a as an artist and um and a mystic and kind of uh New York City runaway in the early 2000s um and I'm you know I'm working on a um an amazing uh kind of speculative uh novel project with the writer C Quintana um that is a kind of afro-caribbean mythography and kind of queer coming of age story that is kind of just re-envisioning mm. all of these different spiritual and historical lineages um, through this particular character's story. And, and so there's a huge range of stuff I work on um, and they don't have to do with utopianism <laughs> as a subject. What they, how they do relate though, is that, you know, my, so much of my adult life has been in, in the, has been in investing and invested in the writing and the projects of people I really, uh, people I love and have long-term relationships with. And mm. that's so much of my own kind of education around being a writer and writing both as a craft and as, you know, and as kind of a life path and as a career has come through actually like a really close and long-term engagement with book projects of people I have very deep relationships with. And so the consistent, I would say, element of my agenting, agenting practice is that, I, is that I, I, I use that vehicle as an agent to kind of work with people who, whose work and lives I'm already deeply invested in, <laughs> work I feel like I have something to say about or think about or can kind of translate um, yeah. Because of because of my long relationship with this person and this project, um, the other thing is that I'm getting ready to work on a new uh, project that's about 
visiting <laughs> Shaker, all 27 remaining Shaker sites. And I found oh, wow. an out of print book from the early 90s called the Shaker Heritage Guidebook that I'm going to use as a model to reconstitute and serialize, I think, what will be text, audio, and some kind of video component, looking at all of the things wonderful. that exist in those sites today. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, everyone. You've got to check out Heaven is a Place on Earth by Adrian. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Nathan. Thank you for all your amazing work. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another week of Schizophrenic Reads, the podcast. You can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash schizoreads. This podcast is edited by Tone Support. Find out more in the description below. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back next week with another episode. Mm-hmm.